being here this morning. We're coming, as it were, to the mountaintop of the conference this weekend. This is what we've been driving towards since Friday evening, the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Um, if you have the printed notes, you did not have the uh, verse of Genesis 1-1. That was a late addition, like about two hours ago. I think so. Looks like he is bringing some things. So Genesis 1-1, you can add to the top. It's probably a verse that you already know by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I remember some years ago at a regional Ligonier conference that was held down in Conroe, going to hear R.C. Sproul and Ligon Duncan speaking over the weekend. And it was a doctrine, uh, was a conference on the doctrine of election chosen by God. Of course, Sproul has a book by that name. And what was fascinating to me was uh, one of the lectures by Ligon Duncan where he took the first verse of Genesis and used that to give an exposition of the doctrine of election. Not necessarily the verse that you think about when it comes to election. The verses that Bill read to us from Ephesians are much more well-known from that standpoint. But what's the point of Genesis 1.1? If God has created the heavens and the earth, just drawing an inference here, he probably had a reason for doing that. And the fact of his ability to create the heavens and the earth and to do that from nothing is kind of an indication of the power that this God has over his creation. And if he has purpose and if he has power, then we shouldn't be surprised if he is able to bring to pass what it is that he has purposed from the beginning to do with this creation. And the capstone of it is, the gist of it, is captured in the very first question and answer in our catechisms. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The idea being that it is God's glory that is in view. And so as we come to this seventh of eight, eight lectures, we're going to be particularly concerned with God's sovereignty and how His sovereignty has the effect of bringing glory to Himself and those that he saves are merely the objects or the instruments of him demonstrating his glory. So that'll be our theme for this morning. And those passages from Ephesians and John will help to highlight that. As well, we have a number of selections from the Westminster Confession, and if you have a copy of the notes, you can refer to those as well. I, I also have an addition to that, by the way, um, and it's, I think I missed it in my printout, uh, but that's, let's see, oh, in chapter 3, I've got 3.5, but I'm also going to be referring to 3.7 as well, um, and you can either listen when we get to that point or you can refer to the confession in the back of your hymnals. It's probably 
not an exaggeration to refer to the doctrine of election as one of the most despised doctrines that there is. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that it is an assault against our pride, that even in our fallenness, we want to do something. Mark mentioned yesterday how the fall was arguably brought about by the pridefulness of the man, his prideful defiance. We can say with some certainty as well that the original fall in heaven of Satan and the angels was a matter of pridefulness, that pridefulness that says, I want to be my own God. I do not want to be under the authority of another. So we have that pridefulness. I would refer to it as the primordial sin. That if we are going to point to one particular kind of sin from which all others tend to flow, it's that one because it's that pridefulness that gives us the defiance to want to do everything our own way according to our own law and not according to the law of God. Now, we haven't made a very explicit point of this through the course of the conference, but I'll go ahead and articulate it now, that in the Reformation, we had what we call the five solas. We have been talking about the first of those five, which is sola scriptura, meaning that we have to begin with the doctrine of Scripture that says Scripture is the ultimate authority. It is the the revelation of God's will for faith and for life, that it contains everything that's necessary for salvation and for obedience, and that it is the, the arbiter of truth, particularly as it regards any controversies of faith in church life, in church polity, and those kinds of things. We have to turn to the Scripture. There has to be, by necessary consequence, an ultimate authority. There is some ultimate authority. The question is, what is it or who is it? And frankly, it's either God as the ultimate authority, speaking through His Word, or it's us. Now, we kind of like the idea that it's us. But unfortunately, that leaves us in the very chaos that we have been describing through the course of the conference. So election tends to be a despised doctrine, and it's despised because it crashes into man's pride, and it crashes into what he thinks is his sense of fairness or justice. And we've talked a little about that. Is God being unfair if he chooses who is saved and who is not? And of course, the answer is that God cannot do anything that is unfair or unjust. It would be a violation of his character. Now, it occurs to me that if we had a crowded church building and we wanted to clear it out as quickly as possible, there are two things that we could do, two possibilities. One would be to set the building on fire. The other would be to get up and preach on the doctrine of election. And we see a picture of that in John 6. It's one of the most remarkable pictures in the ministry of Jesus that he has this huge following. He's just fed the crowd. They follow him around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He preaches a doctrine of election and they all leave. 
just like that. And I suspect the very same thing would happen in most of what is called church today if pastors and teachers preached the doctrine of God's sovereign election because it's an offense to our ears. Who can hear it? Who can listen to this? This is a hard teaching. Well, what is it that makes the doctrine election hard to the ears? Is it because it's hard to understand? No, it's hard because it's an offense to the heart. And so we resist it, and we don't want to hear it. We want to be told that even if it's a very small contribution we make, that we get to make some kind of a contribution to our salvation. And what we need to have in mind for this session is that going through the middle solas, the middle three are the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that brings us to the last of the solas, which is, to God alone is the glory, soli deo gloria. That's where we land this morning with the, the conviction that it is God alone who receives and deserves the glory for all that occurs, whether it's in the salvation of those who are among the elect or whether it is the condemnation of those that we refer to as reprobate, unsaved. So in one sense we could say election is a difficult doctrine, but frankly in another sense it's not difficult to understand, it's only difficult on the human pride. And again, that pride is a remnant of the old nature. It's still there. I heard years ago the explanation for what it means that our sins are crucified, crucifixion doesn't mean instant death. In fact, it means a long, slow, lingering death. Our sins may be nailed to the cross. The, the debt of the sin is paid for. But when we say our sins are crucified, it doesn't mean they're gone. They are still lingering. They don't have the power that they once had, but they are still there and we continue to wrestle against that sin through the process of sanctification until we are glorified. This is the kind of message that based on the passages that we read this morning, it just about gives itself. We have the framework for the message contained in the text. And so I'm going to take a bit of a slow walk through this and then incorporate some of the selections from the Westminster Confession that help to capture what we're going to be seeing from the text. So the passage from Ephesians 1, it says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And part of what that implies is before, as it says of uh, Jacob and Esau, before they had done anything good or bad. It was not based on foresight of faith or good works or anything in the individual. That takes us to Westminster chapter 3, which is the eternal decree. In 3.3, we read, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory... Some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life. 
and others foreordained to everlasting death. 3.5, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions, or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Inevitably, we want to ask the question, why does he choose some and not others? And how does Paul answer that question in so many words? As we say in East Texas, none ya. It's none ya business. God does it for His purposes and for reasons that we will probably never know. There are things, as I said yesterday, that from the beginning, God does not intend for us to know everything. There are limits to our knowledge. There are certainly limits to our authority. And when it comes to His electing purposes, we can be sure of two things. One is that He has a reason, and two, that we're not going to know what it is. And we may try to find some reason for it, whether ourselves or others, whether for election or whether for reprobation. Why did he choose some and not others? And the answer is ultimately and only generally for his own glory. And there's a contrast between those who receive salvation and those who receive judgment, as we will see. In both cases, it brings glory to God. And this is where 3.7 comes in. And I wish I had added that originally before I published the notes. But 3.7 says, The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So 3.5, salvation of the elect is to the praise of his glorious grace and reprobation and justice or punishment is for the praise of his justice. He demonstrates both his mercy and his justice by the difference between those two. Now, going back to Ephesians, it says we are predestined for adoption as sons. Chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession, the shortest chapter in the Confession is on adoption. And I'm grateful that the, the divines included a chapter on adoption in our Westminster Confession, because it's a profoundly meaningful doctrine that we often overlook. We tend to focus more on justification, but adoption is a different, it's a different grace. It's another grace that is added on top of justification. So we're not just predestined, as it were, to salvation, but 
In other words, to be justified from our sins. But beside that, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And what does it mean to be adopted? It means to be in the family. It means that we can call God Father. It means that we can call Jesus Brother. It means that we can call each other brothers and sisters. And it means that we have an inheritance, that we are heirs of God's kingdom. We are not just, as it were, household slaves, but we are heirs as sons and daughters, and we are part of a family. And that takes us into the doctrine of communion, which we only touched upon. But we have communion with each other, spiritual communion with each other, as demonstrated through the elements of the table. And we also have communion with our Savior. Not that we become partakers of the Godhead, but that what man was originally created to be in the image of God with spiritual union to his Maker is now restored through our salvation and through adoption. So he's predestined us for adoption as sons. And listen to what it says next. Here's the why. According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. And to what result? To the praise of his glorious grace. And that also in Christ we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is an economic term. It is a purchase. In our fallen condition, we are described as slaves. And that Christ, as it were, goes into the marketplace with his own blood as the currency to purchase slaves to become his own. We have redemption through his blood. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. Why? According to the riches of his grace. Uh, What do we know about that? It's part of the mystery of his will. Mystery doesn't mean there's not a reason. Mystery means that we don't get to know what it is. Why? According to his purpose. How? Set forth in Christ as a plan. And toward what end? To unite all things together in heaven and on earth. That's just a few verses out of the first chapter of Ephesians that ties all of these things together. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. <coughs> it helps us to understand more clearly what exactly has happened here. Because it starts by telling us that we were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now here's the question for you. How much help does a dead person need? What what does a dead person do for himself? Pretty much. Decompose. Yep, decompose. What is what is one of the pictures toward the end of the ministry of Jesus? One of the miracles that he performed that gives us a demonstration of what we're talking about. The resurrection of Lazarus. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus. He is warned that, you know, it's been a few days. 
and there's probably going to be a smell. So Lazarus is resting comfortably in the grave, decomposing. And what does Jesus say? Come out. And what happens? He comes out. What was Lazarus' part in that transaction? Basically nothing, right? And if we have the picture of Lazarus having been wrapped in grave clothes, even if he could physically, you know, it's like waking him up, wake him up and he's like, oh, okay, so I can hop up and step out of the grave. I don't think that's the picture. If it, think about, you know, like a child wrapped in swaddling cloths. If you're wrapped in grave cloths, you can't move. You have no ability to move even if you're alive. Lazarus was not just dead, but he was really, really dead. It is the power of that word, a demonstration of the power of that word. And we're going to come back to that idea more tonight in our final session. So I'm saying that to keep you in a little bit of suspense and make sure that you come back this evening to hear the last of it. The power of the word that brings him out of the grave from death to life. And the same thing is true for us spiritually. Again, there's kind of a deception. The deception is that we are physically alive and we still have a living soul, but we are spiritually dead. And by spiritually dead, that means without any capacity either to save ourselves or to prepare ourselves for salvation. So that that spiritual new life has to be a one-sided work of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, not wounded, not sick, not asleep, among whom we all once lived. That means everybody. That is the universal curse, the fall, the evidence of which we said yesterday among other things, is the fact that all men die. We all once, I know it's ironic, that we once were dead in sins and trespasses and we lived in that sense. There's equivocal language like that in Scripture all the time. That it's using the same idea or using contrasting ideas in different ways and we have to understand the context of that. Now the next part... Interesting that that thing that we once lived in was the passions of our flesh. What is that referring to? Well, that's our will. When the Arminian and the Pelagian talk about free will, does man have free will? Does he make choices? Sure. What choices does he make? He makes choices according to what he wants, according to his nature. And the nature of fallen man is to act out of the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. That is what it means to be dead in sins and trespasses and to emphasize that the idea finishes by saying that by nature, that is by our fallen nature, we are children of wrath, we were children of wrath like all Mankind. Mankind is under the same judgment. 
And that describes what we once were before we were saved. And then here comes probably the two best words in Scripture. But God. Here's our condition. Dead in sins and trespasses. We were all like that, carrying out the passions of the flesh. By nature, children of wrath, under the wrath of God, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. No man receives any glory for salvation. God receives all the glory because it is all God's doing. And then the why. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that were prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see how these, these passages are just tying everything together in such a beautiful way. Now the passage from John 6, a couple of points that we want to pick up on. I remember 20 years or so ago, probably a little longer actually, having a conversation with one of my coworkers about election. And one of his arguments, if you could call it that, was a statement, not an argument. One of his statements was that Jesus never taught election. Okay, uh, well, we'll just take a very short look at this little passage from John 6 where Jesus says, it is the spirit that gives life. And here I like one of the older translations. It's probably New King James. The flesh avails nothing. Nothing. What other statements do we have like that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's where I can throw a quote from Luther who says, Nothing is not a little something. Nothing. Now listen, he says, His words are spirit and life. His words are spirit and life. We're going to come back to that theme this evening about the power of the Word of God and why we should have such a passion for Scripture because it's not just, you know, I remember in the Methodist Church we like to say the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. Ugh, awful. We also like to say that justification was just as if you never sinned. And if you like that statement, you're probably Roman Catholic, but I'll come back to that in a minute. His words are spirit and life. That is power. No one comes to Christ unless it is given to him by God. Now, what words is Jesus talking about here? 
And here we have to say all of them. We talked about the the importance of the preacher preaching the whole counsel of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believes. And it's not just it's not just one power as if it's one choice among many. It is the only power. It is the exclusive power of salvation. And I can tie us back to the thesis that we began with. If the church is weak because she is full of false converts and even false teachers, it tells us that the the gospel must have been abandoned a long time ago. Because if the gospel were in such a place, the power of the gospel would be at work and it would be seen. And of course, if we set aside the gospel in our fallen wisdom, we try to replace it with an assortment of substitutes. Clever messaging, lights, fog machines. I notice there's no fog machine in here. We'll work on that. It's broken. Okay. Um, Maybe we can go get some dry ice uh, after Sunday school. None of those kinds of things have the power to raise dead souls to new life. Only the gospel has the power to do that. But we abandon the gospel and we start coming up with clever substitutes that do nothing, frankly, but make false converts. So that we can say that everything necessary for saving faith and Christian life are contained in the scriptures. Now let's look at a few confessional excerpts to drive home the point. Now the Westminster Confession is not what we would call an inspired document. In other words, that means it is not inerrant or infallible. But there's kind of a catch here. Because at times the confession does seem to carry the authority of inspiration. How can that be the case? Well, sometimes it is essentially just restating what is already in Scripture. And that's one of the reasons why it seems to have such power to it. Because it is taking passages like this and simply restating and helping to systematize the doctrines that we're finding here. So in the in uh, paragraphs 2.2 and 3.3 I want you to to notice this idea that's repeated in these two paragraphs. I'll read about halfway Now let me read all of paragraph 2.2 because uh, it it finishes with a bang, let's say. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Now that first clause basically says that God doesn't need anything. He is all-sufficient. And I have heard 
in a Pentecostal, or I should say an Assembly of God church, someone say, supposedly uttering a prophetic word, pretentiously speaking as if God was speaking, saying, it's hard for me to repeat it, I need you as much as you need me. Did God say that? Does God need you? Does he need me? Does he need anything outside of himself? He certainly does not. He is into and of himself entirely sufficient. So if we start with that, then the question is, why does he create? Why does he create the world? Why does he create us? It's in order to manifest his glory in what he has created. Now, the last clause after the colon, the italicized part. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. Does that sound to you like man can change God's mind? That, that God can't overrule the will of man? No. It's a very foolish pretense to suggest that God could create something that could somehow overrule him. Because what does that mean about God's sovereignty? It means he ain't sovereign. Whoever gets the final say, as it were, is the one who is sovereign. And the Arminian, if he says that I get to choose, that it's ultimately my choice, not a big contribution, just a little one, then God can't be sovereign. 3.3. This is short. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated under everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. What's the recurring motif? For the manifestation of his glory. Now, what does manifestation mean? Revelation. Showing forth. He is showing forth his glory through his creation and how he disposes his creation Whatsoever he does with it becomes merely an outworking of the manifestation of his glory. So that means either in grace or in judgment. But in grace, his love is manifested. And in judgment, his justice is manifested. We looked at those paragraphs a moment ago. Whatever he does, in either case, we can never say there is unfairness or injustice with God. That is impossible. Now, 8.5 tells us that Christ satisfied perfect justice for those who were saved. So here's a bit of a paradox. Justice is served in either case. Every sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed by humans is repaid either by the substitutionary atonement of Christ or by the sinner paying for it himself. So that there is a perfect correspondence between the individual sins of individual people and the justice of God, which is why we have to reject the idea 
of unlimited atonement, that Christ just died in a very general way for sins generally. God's justice is exact, or else it's not justice. God's integrity is preserved, therefore, in what we call particular atonement, because God cannot and does not overlook sin. So he is therefore purchased reconciliation and an inheritance. That is adoption. Now we are called by the Word and by the Spirit. That's describing the means by which we are called. And here's where we call this effectual calling. Meaning what? Meaning that it works. Meaning that it accomplishes the purpose that it was designed for. Now there are two types of calling that are described. There's an inward calling or an effectual calling, but there's also an external call. Why are there pastors and prophets? Why do we have evangelists? Why do we preach the gospel? That is the external call. And that is a command for us to make that external call. But that external call has to be accompanied by the inward work of the Spirit for it to become effectual. And it has to precede and to accompany that external call. We're told that man is actually passive. Man is enabled to answer the call and to receive the gift of grace. So yes, in a sense, there is a decision. We're not denying that men do not decide, as it were, to receive grace when it's offered, but if they decide to receive it, it's because it has been given to them and they have been prepared to receive it. That becomes an evidence of that inward work. And in the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, where he's kind of very gently but sternly upbraiding this teacher of Israel, he says, you're a teacher and you don't understand this? You, know, you understand the Spirit goes where He wills? It's like the wind. You don't see where He comes from. You don't see where He goes. You have to be born again before you can enter the kingdom of God. That's the first one. And then He says you have to be born again before you can see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again first and it's Not your effort that does it, it's the work of the Spirit. And frankly, it may be imperceptible to you. The Spirit doesn't always work in spectacular ways. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that much of what happens in the church today places false expectations on us that if we don't have some spectacular, earth-shattering kind of experience of salvation, then we're probably not saved. Or as Charles Stanley, the elder, used to say years ago, if you can't name the day and time of your salvation, then you're probably not saved. That's a terrible thing to say because we don't all have that kind of experience and the Spirit goes where He wills and you may not know the exact moment. You may be someone like Cassie who says, I've always been a Christian. Now, a lot of us, at least it's been my observation in a Reformed faith, that we have come through a variety of things to get to where we're at. I could could tell you from my own experience being at the church down the road here, 
that I probably wasn't saved when I stood up and joined that church. But that kind of evangelistic ministry can push you to do those things as if you need some kind of outward sign or outward confirmation of the work of the Spirit, and it can often be misleading. Now, in chapter 11 of the Confession, we have what we call the doctrine of justification. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Now, accounting. Remember the passage we quoted quoted from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, these are the key words, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So in case we wonder what the object uh, that Paul is referring to when he says it is the gift of God in Ephesians 2, it is the faith itself, that even faith is the gift that we use to lay hold of grace. Our theology tends to be too Roman Catholic at this point. We think that what we call salvation is that whatever point we are at at that moment, that everything we've done before that is forgiven. That God is essentially wiping the slate clean. And now we have to follow the law and we can fall into venial sins, which is not too bad, but we could also fall into mortal sin, which means we lose our salvation. That some sin that we commit in the future can be held against us. And that is an insufficient understanding of salvation. That is not what Scripture means by justification, because if all of your sin is not pardoned, even the ones you haven't gotten around to yet, then you can't really be saved. And you cannot say that you have eternal life as a present possession. It's just a potentiality. Justification, then, is a one-time event that's never repeated. It can be mistaken and it can be missed. Count yourself blessed if you don't remember a time that you weren't saved. For most of us, those of us who are saved later in life, you're dragging all of that baggage and trying to get rid of it. And you never really get rid of all the baggage of your past life. You can look back at it and see what you've been saved from, but it still can cling to you. So the key is that there is an imputation or a crediting of the obedience and satisfaction of Christ. Now, what do we say about Adam? He was the federal head of the human race, and in Adam we fell. He was our representative, he was given the law, and he didn't keep it. And we fell in him, and his 
fall was imputed to us. But in Christ, the last man, the second Adam, who kept the law perfectly and died a substitutionary death, we can be justified because his his righteousness, his perfect obedience is credited to us. It's hard to believe. Grace is hard to believe. That when God looks at the believer, he doesn't see you, he sees his son and the perfect obedience of his son. And the guilt of sin has been placed upon him and God's perfect justice has been satisfied in him. Sometimes we call that double imputation. That our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. What's our result? I love the way the confession says it. Receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith. That faith itself is a gift. God has to do it all from start to finish. That means the debt of sin has been discharged. It's paid in full. The expression is nailed to the cross. When there was a public nailing of a credit, that was the uh, that was a creditor's way of saying, I've forgiven the sin. I've, I've pardoned the debt. It's been paid. If it's the case that salvation is once and done, then it can't be lost. I remember the, the friend who said that Jesus never taught the doctrine of election. We were talking one time about once saved, always saved. And there are many in the evangelical world who deny election, divine election, but they will maintain divine preservation. And this friend who was a member of the Assembly of God Church around the loop there, the big one, he said, if I believed once saved, always saved, I'd have to believe in election. And I thought, that's right. You made the connection. Because if God is doing the preserving, he's also doing the saving. And if he's doing the saving, he's also doing the preserving. It's a package deal. Perseverance is built into election. Listen to this. You are not chosen to be potentially saved and potentially sanctified and potentially glorified and potentially resurrected, but potentially lost because God's promises cover all of it from start to finish. What is it that Jesus said on the cross, the last thing he said? He didn't say, I've done everything I can. I, I died for everybody, or I died to set an example. We'll see what happens now. Is that what he said? Help me out here. It is finished. Finished. Done. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing lacking from it. We're told that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. We have the hope not only of forgiveness of sins, but of preservation. God's love is not merely 
When we talk about God's love, everybody's talking about God's love, right? Rob Bell wrote a book about that a few years ago, which kind of was some of the early evidence of his apostasy. God's love is not merely affectionate towards you. It is effectual to do all that he purposes in saving you. In other words, he doesn't just say, I love you, now it's up to you. God's love works, and it accomplishes what he intends for it. The confession says that it is the nature of the covenant of grace that makes it infallible. God's promises never fail because he is sovereign over his creation from beginning to end. The chief end of man, therefore, is to glorify God. Salvation brings glory to God when he makes his love of Christ visible through us. As a musician, I'm inclined to use a musical analogy here. Many of you have heard some great musical performance. What glory does the instrument get in that performance? None, really. It's merely the instrument by which the musician expresses his abilities. And we are kind of like that. God is expressing his love for Christ through the redeemed so that we are merely the instruments, as it were, on which he is playing a song of adoration to Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're described as clay pots. And a clay pot is nothing but dirt and a little water. There's not much to it. It's not glorious by virtue of what it's made of. It's glorious by virtue of what is placed into it. And when Christ is placed into us as a clay vessel, it is from that that we have glory that comes from him. We are just clay in the potter's hand. He can do what he wants to with us. I want to close this session with a couple of quotations, one from Isaiah 48 and one from Psalm 115. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Yahweh says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen. Yeah, 115 verse 1.